Welcome to another episode of The Medical Accountant. I'm Kim Nitschke. Today's episode, I sat down with Roger Davies. Roger Davies is a radiologist, entrepreneur, and a pilot. He studied in Sydney, and he's now based in Adelaide. He now drives a Tesla, and I hope you really enjoy today's story about his life, what he does, and his work as a radiologist. Well, let's get straight into it. Talking all things medical, all things finance, that sort of procedure would be incredibly stressful. They stop breathing. Problem. How many people are you impacting the lives of? Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Roger Davies, radiologist from Adelaide, head of Adelaide Medical Imaging. I'm so excited about today, and I'm not exaggerating by any fleet of imagination. I've been wanting to get you on this show for quite some time because you're such a fascinating person, and I'm only interested in talking to fascinating doctors. And today, we're talking all things medical. Let's go right back to the start of your career. Can you just give us a bit of a background to who you are and what you do in the medical space? Sure. I, uh, it's lovely to be here with you, and um, it's fabulous to to talk. I f- I find uh, uh, the the interchange of ideas is always throws new ideas up for me, and it makes me uh, reevaluate what I've done or why I've done something. And very often, you get a, a a new idea coming out of that process of reflection and reevaluation. So it's uh, it's really good fun for me to do something like this with you, and I appreciate the chance. Um, I uh, grew up in Sydney. Uh, I'm born in Dorigo, which is northern New South Wales, a little town whose claim to fame is uh, one of the highest rainfalls in Australia. And they can get 100 centimetres, sorry, 100 millimetres overnight. That's quite a lot of rain to come down. Um, uh, mainly dairy farmers and their cows. And um, there used to be a bit of logging there, but that's gone now because of, you know, forestry protection. So uh, Dorigo is a tiny little town in the bush. And um, my parents came to Sydney when I was about five. Uh, moved into a suburb that was apple orchards at the time and subsequently was completely overwhelmed by the Sydney development of, you know, smaller and smaller houses with larger and larger, you know, televisions in them. And uh, so I grew up in Sydney, uh, went to Fort Street Boys High, which is a, uh, a, a, a type of high school that we don't have here in South Australia. So that's a selective state-funded school. Um, my dad went there and my grandfather before him, so I applied and was able to be selected for schooling in the, this Fort Street Boys. Uh, notable people went there, John Singleton in advertising, uh, Neville Rann, who was at one point a, a Premier of New South Wales, uh, John Kerr, who was the former Governor-General of, of uh, Note when he sacked Gough Whitlam and, and uh, gave Malcolm Fraser the nod. So all sorts of reprobates went to Fort Street Boys. <laughs> uh, I, um, I graduated from there and uh, at the time... Uh, the selection process for medical school was purely based on marks. So pretty much anybody could get in if they were able to, you know, accommodate or or adjust to the exam system and, and, um, and you know, work the numbers so that you got a better mark than most other people. It's interesting, since, uh, since then they've changed to a progressive process of vetting people to get into medical school. And, you know, there's all sorts of screening processes now applied in different universities across Australia. I think probably I would never get into medicine again. I think I'd be knocked out of the first hurdle as being, you know, a little bit too quirky or, 
or too uh, diverse in, in terms of what uh, might be perceived as the ideal doctor. And I'm not sure that knocking those people out at the beginning is necessarily good for medical technology and medical discovery because um, keeping people who are only mainstream tends to encourage conservative middle-of-the-road strategies and to some extent medicine grows because people are out at the edges looking for newness, difference, uncertainty, unexplained phenomena and, and those people make observations that then lead to new devices, new ideas, new treatments. So we've diversed, uh, so diverted from your question. Uh, so Fort Street Boys High, uh, Sydney Uni uh, Medical School. Uh, it was a, a curious course. Um, almost the entire course was um, multiple choice. And because I'm good at multiple choice answers, <laughs> I got through medical school with no problems. But at the end of it, you don't necessarily know a lot of medicine. And I think you're learning as a doctor often starts the day you, you graduate and then you realise that it's actually, you know, in earnest you have to be able to do all these things and know all the information and sort it and process it and problem solve. I think the um, while I was at uni I did uh, computer science and maths as non-degree subjects and I had a, had a kind of a, an ongoing interest in science. Um, and uh, and that, that combination of uh, knowledge and understanding of physics, for example, um, led me to select a career in radiology that was very much based in uh, technology as opposed to people man management. Um, so radiology is uh, driven by the physics of radiation and the physics of ultrasound, the physics of MRI, and understanding those and having a really good grasp of the, of the scientific principles allows you to use the technology to its best. But um, coupled with that, the the uh, process of imaging is very much about discovery and uh, problem solving you know uh, solving the clues to get to a diagnosis with the with the highest chance of success and the lowest likelihood of an erroneous diagnosis so in that sense radiology is uh, hugely um, interesting and challenging and continues to be so it never becomes uh, you know, a mundane, uh, repetitious type of process because you're always trying to grapple with new problems, understand new diseases as they're discovered or described, use new technologies. So uh, when I started um, in uh, in radiology uh, training, there was no MRI in Australia and it's now an absolutely mainstream uh, technology. Um, CT was only just coming in uh, when I was coming through and so the first um, CT scanner that I saw was called an EMI scanner. And EMI, of course, were the record company that uh, uh, were the label that the Beatles made all their money on. And they made EMI enough money that the EMI could invest in this medical technology. And it was directly because of the Beatles label that the CAT scanner came to be a technological reality. So it's, uh, it's funny. So the EMI scanner uh, took 45 minutes to scan the brain and the patient would be uh, basically locked into a, a cage with um, water bags wrapped around their head because the machine couldn't accommodate the difference between air and, and water when it was taking the slices through the brain. Uh, and so the patient would lie there for up to 45 minutes while they laboriously you know, did one iteration at a time. Uh, and at the end of that time, it was about another half hour of computing processing to then get the images out. So it was about an hour and a half process. And a, a CAT scanner would do perhaps uh, five or six patients a day. Um, and if we look at the technology now where we've gone to 160 or 320 slices uh, acquired simultaneously 
image production in fraction of a second. A whole study is produced in minutes as opposed to hours. The range and diversity of information that you can now glean from, from CT has almost no resemblance to the very first scanners that were invented literally while I was going through medical school. So it's been a, a real technology journal, a journey along the way, um, fabulous uh, development of of better strategies at imaging and imaging the body in different ways. So uh, x-rays use um, um, the fact that different parts of the body block x-rays to a greater or lesser extent. So that's an x-ray, you know, chest x-ray, something like that, where you can see air versus water or water versus fat. Uh, CT is able to detect um, differences in density around 100 times less than a chest x-ray. So you have this fantastic fine detail between substances that are very similar. So white matter and gray matter in the brain, for example, are, are only a, a, you know less than 1% difference in density and you can pick the difference between them on a CT. The spatial resolution of CT has uh, really taken us into a completely different area where we can now measure an object which is half a millimeter in each dimension. So that's like a speck of sand is large enough to show up on a, on a CAT scanner these days. Uh, ultrasound as another huge um, expansion of imaging and so we went from um, barely being able to see um, a, a fetus inside the mother to now being able to measure um, a tiny hole, a pinhole in the heart of a 20-week gestation fetus. Um, I had one this week. Um, amazing detail, amazing ability to see structures inside clearly enough for example to do targeted injections so we can deliver uh, steroid for example directly into the bursal space or the joint space or uh, the tendon sheath rather than just injecting in the area and hoping that there was an effect it's interesting that um, my job has probably changed uh, by at least 80 percent every five years if i look back five years the stuff I was doing back then has either been you know, supplanted or surpassed or replaced by a newer strategy or a newer imaging technique. And uh, so over, over my own career, I've moved from uh, doing inpatient intervention in hospital. Uh, I would be, uh, for example, have an anesthetized patient. I'd have uh, a, 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 some sort of access device in their groin. I'd be steering a catheter to inside their brain. You know, so it's a kind of a long, you know, plastic curved tube through which you can deliver metal or or glue or therapeutic substances so that that was sort of the first 10 years that led me to developing that technique in children in particular and children are technically a challenge because they're much smaller than adults and their tissues behave differently the different disease processes that affect children are completely unlike adult processes and eventually that uh, led me to be offered a um, a job at Grand Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Kids in London, and uh, I, I was I was literally amazed that they even knew what I was doing, let alone were interested enough in my work to to invite me to go to London. So um, about um, twenty years ago now, um, I up uh, uprooted my family, then two uh, daughters, and we went to London and lived there for a year. It was a fabulous journey. Um, I I loved the work. Uh, that hospital had a draw of uh, at least 100 million people who would indirectly refer to it. So we used to see 
every week we'd see diseases I'd never even heard of, let alone knew anything about. So I'd be endlessly looking up, you know, and, and finding out about these really rare and wonderful things that turned up from the northern part of Africa, from parts of France and Spain, uh, Ireland, Italy. It was an incredible, you know, drain of patients just to that hospital. And they would all come there because that was the last point of, uh, you know, the last the last port of call when a child had a disease that was so unusual that no one else could treat it. Um, in the end, I came home because my two children announced that they weren't going to keep living in London. They were 11 and 8 at the time. Uh, my uh, One of my daughters said that London was like uh, a rotten apple and Australia was like a ripe peach. And the other one declared that uh, London was grey sky, grey rain, grey people. <laughs> it was a harsh assessment. <laughs> And uh, in fact, they've both changed their minds subsequently. They would love to go back to London as adults, you know, and, and experience the culture. Uh, we had a fabulous year that year because the hospital where I was working had a, a charity room office on the ground floor, and you could go and get tickets any day of the week to, you know, a show of some description. And so we went out 150 times that year. I went out, you know, every second night we'd go to something. So we'd see uh, Nigel Kennedy as a fantastic violinist playing on the South Bank, and he just did a, a, a most a remarkable concert that you know left me in tears. And uh, 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 plays Shakespeare produced in a way that I had never dreamed of, you know, in the in the round or live or open air or with fabulous people acting, um, amazing musicians. There was. Um, a Russian musician that we went to see one night, and it was a bit a bit lucky draw, you know. That was whatever tickets were on, we'd we'd go there. Uh, at the time, it was Lady Di's um, favorite charity, and they they had a kind of a good draw of people. So um, uh, this uh, violinist was billed as uh, the, leaving the audience slack jawed. Was the you know on the <laughs> that was a big call. I thought so. We went along, and uh, sure enough, we were we were literally open mouthed. He was most technically the most incredible player. Um, probably that I've ever seen. It was a remarkable performance. Uh, one night we went to see um, uh, Daniel Barenboim, who's a very, very eminent pianist and, condu and uh, conductor, uh, playing a Mozart piano concerto, a double piano concerto, so it's unusual to see it. So it's sort of back-to-back -back Steinways with a, another pianist and the London Symphony Orchestra and just fabulous performance. So that was, that was a brilliant year and it was real, um, culturally it was a huge experience for us all. And, uh, stepping back um, to Australia, I, I, funny enough, I didn't mind, and I, I can still recall we flew back from London at the end of two winters and what they called a summer, right, which was uh, which was only like our winter. You know, it was it was literally grey sky, grey sky, grey rain, um, and uh, so we'd had this miserable summer. In fact, it was funny the the uh, hospital where I was working in the X-ray department had a skylight in the in the roof over the clerical area where the films were collated. And it was about five months after I'd got there that I realised it was a skylight. It was the first time that the sun actually came down. <laughs> it was the next May, you know, before there was a shaft of sunlight and I was like, oh, it's, it's the sky. <laughs> I just assumed it was a light until then, you know, because it was grey like everything else. <laughs> Anyway, so we'd we'd had that that brief summer, and then and then the second winter, and that by by that stage my kids were ready to you know come home without me, and um, we stepped off the plane after a mainly night flight London to Singapore, and then it was the next day as we flew into Australia, and it was like uh, it was like stepping into a child's uh, picture book. The colours in the sky and the grass were so green that 
incredible intensity of colour in Australia that we we don't appreciate because it's you know seen to be normal for us. But to come from a dark European winter to this fantastic kaleidoscope of colour was fabulous. So Adelaide's a great place to live. Uh, I'll cut it short. I uh, then uh, spent five years uh, as a public hospital director of radiology at the Queen Liz and Lyme McEwen hospitals. Uh, managed to make a little bit of a stir by ordering an MRI machine that uh, argu arguably <laughs> should have been delivered, was promised, but uh, at the last minute uh, there was some some hiccups with the delivery and I, um, I made sure that the machine came to the hospital because it was well and truly needed. Um, I, uh, I got into a bit of trouble for that and subsequently decided that the, um, the path for me was possibly not in the public sector. I'm a bit of a, a disruptor of, of processes and don't follow them as well perhaps as I should. So um, I by chance had uh, started some local work in Orange in New South Wales. Um, they were desperately short of radiologists and they were short in particular of people who could do interventions. So um, delivering uh, pain management injections into the spine or into the neck, into the knees and shoulders, and that was part of my um, expertise by that stage. I developed that work. Um, so I found myself going to Orange more and more regularly because I loved the work and the people were very appreciative and the hospital system there was well organised and um, we were doing a lot of great work for people who just didn't couldn't access that technology, you know, literally this side of Sydney. Um, and uh, I, I found the travel was a bit onerous because I was, it was almost a you know eight hour journey by the time you get to Adelaide Airport, fly to Sydney, miss the morning flight, get the afternoon flight. You know, you get four o'clock in the afternoon, you're arriving at work for the day, and so that dragged after a bit. Um, for a little while, I drove up and down from Sydney so I could kind of get out of the Sydney airport and then drive three hours to work. That was better than sitting in Sydney airport for most of the day. And I then hit upon the idea of uh, learning to fly and flying myself uh, from Orange to Adelaide each week. So uh, one summer I took lessons and got my licence, uh, bought a little two-seater plane and uh, started to fly most weeks to and from uh, to and from Adelaide. Uh, fabulous little aircraft. Um, yeah, as it turns out, um, once you've taken off and kind of got yourself to cruising height for the next three hours, it's about three hours and 12 minutes, um, really you just change the petrol tank each hour that was all there was to do and the rest of the time was thinking right so quiet you know uninterrupted thinking time my little aircraft um uh, flew at about 400 kilometers an hour just under 400 kilometers an hour and and quite high i could fly up to twenty thousand feet and um and that's the that's the bottom of you know jet airspace uh and it used less fuel than i would use if i drove a car across the hay plane and i was quite surprised when I worked that out that I was so fuel efficient. Can we move over to your connection and association with Tesla? Sure. So you drive a Tesla? I do indeed. It's a fabulous car. Now, I remember seeing this at a party, I think it was about two years ago, and we couldn't find the exhaust pipe. We went out to the street and we saw the car parked on the street. Uh, and the Teslas, as people will know, have um, sort of unusual um uh, doors and door opening mm -hmm. devices. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a very unique car and obviously no exhaust pipe, which looks unbelievable from the back, but there's so many other features that are so unique in that car. But can you please tell us about your Tesla and your connection with the company? Sure. It's uh, it's the P85D and uh, you have to understand the, the naming system a little bit to know 
uh, what that means. So the 85 refers to the nominal kilowatt hours in the battery pack. And to put that into perspective, my uh, my building, my big 3,000 square meter building, has a battery pack with a with a, a useful capacity of 100 kilowatt hours, and my car has 85 kilowatt hours <laughs> of battery in it. So it's a big battery for a little car. Wow. Um, that battery uh, typically takes uh, six to eight hours to charge uh, from 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 completely flat. And depending on how I drive the car, that will get me somewhere between 350 and 500 kilometres. So in practical terms, if you've just driven 400 kilometres, it's time to have a break. And in general terms, it's usually possible to find a place to plug the car in. If you're at a you know a holiday cabin, you plug a you know extension cord into the into the power, and by the next day you've got another 200 kilometres or so of useful range. So the car is mainly used around the city where I drive to and from my place of work. Uh, the big building that we've been talking about has 100 kilowatt, almost 100 kilowatts of PV panels on the roof. And most of the year I have surplus power. I have enough power in the middle of summer to charge seven or eight cars simultaneously. And so I've provided uh, car charging spots. I wrote to Tesla and said, hey, I've got this free power. I'd like to you know, have some outlets. And Tesla immediately sent me two of their uh, outlet charges. So it's now a destination point on the Tesla website for people in South Australia. They can come to Fluid Solar House and plug in. And it's one of the few places where you're actually charging your car from the sun. So it's a genuine uh, fossil fuel free solution. And one of the criticisms of electric cars is, of course, that, oh, well, you're just using the power from the power station that was burnt coal anyway, so it's not really saving anything. But from my from my own experience, we will be able to provide um, something approaching a million kilometres per year of car travel. If my, uh, if my occupants in my building drove electric cars, they could charge two or three times a week, uh, you know, from my roof. And whenever there was surplus energy, we would be just putting it into those cars in the car park. And that's a genuine um, solar solution. So if you think of the car as being the overflow charging battery that carefully drives to a nice place where there's some solar power, if we if we looked upon it as a broad perspective, we would have rooftop charging from everywhere available, charging electric cars driven by the workers in the factory or the business where they were working. And we would convert a, a roughly half of our transport energy consumption from fossil fuel, petrol, to genuine solar power. So one of the solutions for storing solar energy from PV, which is at the moment ridiculously expensive, is to actually just put that straight into cars that are parked around the buildings. So my prediction is that 20 years from now that will become the norm, that probably half of the people will have an electric car at that stage because petrol cars last for about 20 years, so they're wearing out and then not being replaced, and that rooftop charging during the day will become the norm for businesses. That will be a useful but but a normal part of business activity. So there's a rumour going around that you got your car for free from Tesla. No, that's uh, <laughs> that would be that would be really lovely if it were true. <laughs> uh, no, like all good things there's a price to pay. Um, uh, um, the car so eighty five D, so the P is for performance. And the D is for all-wheel drive. So it's uh, each wheel is driven by a, a, an electric motor. Uh, the performance is uh, 0 to 100 in three seconds. So uh, if that means anything, if you're a car nut. Um, that is very fast. Th- that is uh, faster than any, uh, any available Porsche that you can buy in a dealership in Australia. 
Um, and it's very quiet. It's a, it's a beautiful, quiet car to drive around in. Have you ever been inconvenienced by having a flat battery? In that car, no. Mm. Um, because I charge at work, I drive to work, I just plug the car in, I drive at home at night. I don't think I've ever charged my car at home. I've never had to. So just literally, to I don't even think about it. I just plug in as I get to work or there's a charger here in the afternoons. And so if, if you change, if you start thinking about charging your car during the day instead of at night, then the whole equation changes. You, The last time I went to a petrol station, I had a flat tyre. You still get flat tyres. But um, it's uh, it's literally not something that I ever even, even pay attention to anymore. Um, so have you met Elon Musk? I'm hoping to meet Elon Musk tomorrow night, strangely. There's a... <laughs> There's a uh, uh, Elon Musk's, of course, been uh, been in the news supplying uh, batteries to South Australia. Yes. Uh, he's been in town this week at a um, space uh, conference that's been organised here in, in Adelaide, and we understand that he will be a unexpected guest tomorrow night at uh, the uh, sod turning ceremony out at the wind farm, uh, which is out at Horndale, so that's near Jamestown, about two and a half hours north of here. Uh, so there's a there's a big celebration tomorrow night. As a Tesla owner, I was invited to to attend, and uh, and so we'll all be driving out there tomorrow night to have this sod turning ceremony for the, the 100 megawatt hour battery pack that Teslas are are about to install in South Australia. Uh, and it's just possible that I may have a the opportunity to have a chat to Elon tomorrow night. Oh, wow! What amazing! That's just it's absolutely a, it's unbelievable. Been it's been fabulous. Can we go? back to the whole radiology sector and like because we've got the interns rmos registrars fellows can we talk in radiology what what are the salary bands for those sectors Mm, uh that's a a left field so uh a a graduate uh um medical uh, so first year intern um, I, I'm going to say is on $42 an hour. That's a, a bit of a wild guess, but it's going to be in that sort of order, 40, so low to mid-40s. Um, as you pass through a registrarship, you'll move into $50-something an hour. Um, as a senior registrar, you're kind of up to something like the $60 an hour. I don't know why we're doing these numbers, no, but no, uh, the, I guess we're going I'm, somewhere with it. No, we are because this is for people who are outside looking in at the medical um, sector and considering it as a career, it's it, in the Google searches. Everyone wants to talk salary, you know, and it ranks right at the top. So, I think it's important just to drill down in your profession just to find out bandwidths on what people who move into this profession could expect to earn. Uh, just as a general, generally speaking. So, if we're talking, um, you know, th- those bandwidths, and we got to um, the the registered guys. And then above that, the fellows, then they're on like more. So, uh, uh, so a staff specialist, I think, is um, seventy-seven dollars an hour, or eighty dollars an hour. So, uh, in order to, uh, if you're treating medicine as a business, which some people do, um, it's driven by the way Medicare works, not by the the hourly salary that you can obtain. So, uh, hourly salaries, I guess, reflect the fact that. Um, a medical uh, undergraduate degree now is six or seven years, depending on which uni. Um, you then look at at least two years of 
of in-hospital training as a as an intern and a resident. So we're up to eight or nine years, assuming that you get straight through. Uh, often there's a, a, a delay of one or two or even three years while you're waiting to get into a training program. So we're now perhaps at the 11-year mark. The training program itself might run for five, six or seven years. So we're now out to 17 years perhaps from when you started to when you actually end up a specialist. Now, that's a very long very arduous training process in order to get potentially to a point where you might be earning a lot more money than that for a short, relatively short period of time. So the guy who started out as a plumber is going to be ahead of you at least until you're 50 because he's been earning good, you know, good money all that time. So I think it's, um, I think it's a mistake to go into medicine thinking that it's going to be a lucrative career. Uh, if your focus is on money, your focus is not on, on your patients. And I think that uh, any anybody who's focusing on money is running the risk in that sense of allowing that to become a factor in their decision-making process. And for, for someone in the medical sector who's uh, you know, a graduate, would you suggest radiology as a career path is a good one? Would you suggest there's too many radiologists now? There aren't too many radiologists because the rate that technology has expanded has substantially uh, exceeded the capacity of radiologists to deliver that that process. Um, so the field is widening with uh, what they can treat and what they can... So certainly treatment is becoming um, a significant component of radiology, whereas when I started interventional radiology, it almost didn't exist. Um, out-of-hospital treatment is also expanding quite significantly, so the range of conditions that can be treated as an outpatient. I think that's very valuable from the point of view of public policy because if you can get someone who's got back pain back to work, for example, or if you can relieve uh, someone who's got shoulder pain and get them you know, back into some sort of even volunteer career is better than them sitting at home being disabled and feeling disabled. So just picking that as an example, any outpatient uh, treatment pathway that leads people back to a useful, um, productive life is fantastic use of resources compared to, and I'm, I'm exaggerating here, compared to the current situation where typically in one's last year of life, you absorb 25 to 30% of your lifetime's medical resources. So in that very last year of your life, and you've usually got a terminal condition or you've got a pre-terminal condition, you use an enormous amount of medical care for, at the end of the day, a very modest ex extension of your life cycle, for example. Um, so so um, using all of that resource on people who, who are inevitably, you know, in, in the very last stages of their life is not fantastic allocation of resources. Allocation of medical resources is a very complicated, uh, very problematic um area, so health planning, if we want to call it that, because there are a whole series of competing demands on the resource, and they're not all driven by the broader picture of public good. So there are um, factions, there are uh, enthusiasts, there are um, existing you know, infrastructure that has to be supported. In South Australia, we have, uh, for whatever reason, decided to allocate one-sixth of the entire health budget for the whole state to do the hotel services for one building. That's the new Royal Adelaide Hospital. So one-sixth of our entire health budget will be spent for the next 30 years on the physical building 
and the hotel services to support the Royal Adelaide Hospital. What are the hotel services? Uh, cleaning, uh, porters, uh, security guards. One-sixth of the entire health budget is being spent on one building, which is not in itself delivering any health care. So that's a good example of an allocation of resources that I I've, I've don't believe is the best use of resources. So do they have to take resources away from... Inevitably. ...what's currently being used by... Correct. All the other medical practitioners in the state. Indirectly or directly, they have to downsize other services or they have to tax everybody more. They're the, they're the only two possibilities. So that's an allocation of resources that if you, if you look at it from that point of view, we could have had um, one of the best health uh, research institutes in the world if we'd allocated all of that money to health researchers as opposed to a construction of a building, for example. So we are misallocating resources in health if if our perspective or if our focus is on delivering the best good or the greatest good to the most people. With your typical day, are you sitting looking at scans on a screen, diagnosing? Is that what you do or are you more hands-on interventions? So it, it, it turns out that I, I see patients most of my day uh, because the process of uh, managing a patient's pain is very much uh, based on um, taking a history from them, examining them, then doing the diagnostic imaging. So that's an intrinsic part of the process. Uh, uh, reading the referring doctor's um, you know, referral notes so that, that their perspective on what the patient's problem is and what uh, the treatment is t targeted towards. Uh, then the actual treatment process itself, using image guidance to deliver therapy uh, to the place which is going to result in an improvement in their, you know, their, their health or their pain chart or their, you know, their perception of pain. Um, that process is very much uh, all about interacting with a patient, not interacting with an image. So people come to you when they're suffering chronic back pain, for example, or neck pain or whatever. Yeah. Um, you. Uh, examine what the problem is using all your technology here and then you will inject them to treat and, and, and pinpoint where exactly the pain is. So that is, our, that is our aim, to be as precise anatomically as we can and to target specifically the structure which is causing the pain. So uh, it's uh, the analogy I use, if you go to the dentist and he anaesthetizes the wrong tooth, your tooth still hurts. If he anesthetizes the correct tooth, obviously your pain is relieved for that period of time. Because we're we're going beyond simply covering up pain, so anaesthetic, if you like, just masks the pain for a period of time. Um, in general terms, uh, for example, if you have a disc protrusion where the the it's a pancake-shaped disc contained by a ligament, the annular ligament around the outside of the disc, if that ligament is stretched or if there's a crack or a tear in that ligament and the jelly from the center of the disc squeezes out, it's intensely irritating to the nerve, which is immediately nearby. Uh, if that nerve is pushed out of its alignment, so if the nerve is displaced out of its standard you know, anatomical pathway, there's also a mechanical irritation component. Uh, as uh, your heart beats, um, each, each uh, pulse of your heart drives blood up into your brain. And in order to make room in the brain cavity, which is physically contained by the skull, a small amount of CSF fluid pulses down the spinal cord. 
So each heartbeat, there's a little pulsation of CSF fluid, which is bathing the base of the brain, and it shoots down the spinal cord. So there's a pulsing effect. And in, feet, in the whole of the uh, central nervous system, so the spinal cord and all the nerve roots, are literally uh, shimmery up and down as the heart beats. And it's a tiny movement, but uh, if the nerve is expecting to be surrounded by fluid and able to freely move up and down, and you displace the nerve uh, out of its alignment so that it's touching the disc or touching a bony spur, after a while that nerve can become very irritated, and that's the sensation of, of uh, neurasthesia, so numbness, tingling, pain that the person perceives because the nerve is being stimulated by this constant irritation. So our, our treatment strategy is to uh, make room around the nerve by reducing the swelling that is caused by the disc material to accelerate the natural healing process. So a disc over six to 12 months uh, tends to dehydrate when the, when the fragment has been squeezed out. Uh, so it's like, um, it's like toothpaste. If you squeeze it out of the tube, you can't get it back. Over time, that toothpaste will dehydrate and shrink away. And once the disc material has been dehydrated by the natural healing process the body adopts, uh, it, it retracts the disc material eventually away from the nerve root and your pain stops. So the steroid reduces swelling around the nerve root and it also accelerates that, that healing process so that people get out of pain more quickly. The evidence is, is uh, very clear, very large, uh, usually American trials of, of uh, for example, a, a blinded trial where a needle is placed in the body but no steroid is injected versus uh, anesthetic being injected. Uh, very large blinded trials have shown clear patient score benefit from epidural steroid injection for that particular disease process that I described compared with a sham injection of, of saline, normal saline is a, just a salty water, or injecting local anaesthetic alone. So injecting local anaesthetic gives you a short-term pain relief. Steroid is demonstrated in very large, well-controlled trials to produce a significant improvement in pain scores over that six to 12 months after the event, after the disc has been you know, squeezed out or inadvertently uh, the ligament's been stretched by a fall or you know, lifting something too heavy or twisting to the side. And when you're injecting the um, steroid into the body, are you watching it on a screen to make sure that you pinpoint accuracy where yeah, you deliver so, it? So uh, the traditional teaching or the traditional method before CAT scanning was available, uh, it would, would often be an anaesthetist. They would uh, place a needle approximately in the position and they would use the bony landmark so you could see there was a facet joint nearby and they would just inject a, a very large amount relatively of the steroid in order that some of it infused or, or you know, leaked through the tissues into the target area. With the advent of CT, it's now possible to place the needle in the epidural space, which is normally uh, an actual space. When it's being compressed by, uh, for example, the disc squeezing on the sac, the sac being pushed over, um, the amount of uh, fat in that epidural space can be uh, negligible. So we know where the space is, but, but we can only see it indirectly by the shape of the objects around it. So our technology now allows us to very reliably place the needle in what is only a potential space, uh, confirm that we're in that space by injecting a, a tiny amount of uh, dye which is visible on the CAT scan. So once we've documented where the distribution of fluid is, where we know the, the steroid will follow, it's then possible to inject around a nerve root specifically, uh, and that 
that targeted therapy is demonstrated on in big trials to be the most effective uh, non-surgical method of treating disc pathology. Wow. That's very impressive. I mean, that, you must be getting amazing results with patients being able to, you know, with, with the, the latest technology being introduced to these medical issues, which for generations have gone on and just people have put up with them. And now you're able to, you know, within microns, uh, it's fractions to, of a millimetre. Fractions yeah. of a millimetre be able to actually hit that spot. And so I think it's really important not to be too enthusiastic about new technology and kind of go, oh, it must be good. Mm-hmm. So our, our attitude is very much driven by um, looking at uh, trials and groups of trials that are that are collated into what's called meta-analysis and making sure that any treatment that we offer is being demonstrated to be of benefit in, in well-conducted trials. So... I think it's really important to focus your treatment on evidence. So evidence-based medicine is the is the generic uh, strategy where you look at, uh, for example, uh, taking a statin for your cholesterol has to have more benefits than risks. And so there's really good work on which groups of patients are going to benefit from having their cholesterol lowered. So cardiologists are really good at doing trials and measuring carefully the outcomes. There are some really good longitudinal trials over 10 years looking at the effect of reducing blood pressure, of reducing your weight, reducing your cholesterol, changing your diet. All of those factors influence your likelihood of dying or having a severe cardiovascular event in the next you know, measurable time. In the same way, I think any radiology treatment should be subjected to those same evidence-based measures. And so we, we work really hard to read the literature, keep up to date with what the trials are saying. Um, so, for example, there's a, a, an interesting trial come out of New South Wales a few months ago now looking at uh, various uh, drug treatments for sciatica. Uh, and there are some, uh, there are some uh, drugs that were originally used for treating um, psychological conditions. And they've been uh, in vogue for a few years now, being very much um, promoted by the drug companies that, that make these drugs. This trial says that the, the net effect of those psychotropic medications is um, so small as not to be of any value. So hardly any better than placebo or in a couple of cases worse than placebo. So in a drug trial, you'll give someone a sham treatment with you know sugar pill <laughs> and then you compare that to the real pill. So the patient doesn't know which pill they're getting. The person giving them the pill doesn't know which, so that's double blind where nobody knows. And then afterwards oh. they measure their pain scores to see whether it made any difference. Um, Panadol osteo, right, is being promoted very heavily as being for pain, osteopain. Uh, in a trial situation, it's no better than any of the other alternative treatments. So if you do very careful analysis using groups of patients, using carefully controlled evaluation, Ideally, you only offer treatments which are demonstrated to be of benefit to patients on average. So our treatments are all based on evidence base. Can we move over to finance now? Do you have an in-house accountant working for you here? We don't. We use a firm of accountants. Um, We have moved recently, and I don't know whether should we be naming names? No, 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 don't name them. (laughs) Uh, I've been uh, lucky enough to have the same accountant for... Most of my, my uh, professional life, he's moved a couple of times from firm to firm and we've followed him rather than stay with the firm. And how much of your headspace is allocated to finance and all things money on a daily basis? Do you Are you so hands-on that you're checking your bank balances every day? 
Um, I think it's much more sensible to have structures in place. Um, first of all, good reporting structures. So we run a business. Um, we have around 50 employees. Um, so that's a big uh, wages packet every week. And obviously we need to know what cash flow, uh, you know, where our, uh, where our uh, expected outcomes are going. So everything's, you know, cash flowed and we know through the year where we're going to be at. Um, but, but in general terms, um, trying to run a business by looking at how much money you made is much less successful than looking at how the business is delivering a service, making sure that your service is pertinent, relevant to your your uh, patients if it's a medical practice, making sure that your quality of service is maintained, making sure that you're keeping abreast of current technology so that you're offering services which are appropriate to the needs of your patients. If you, in general terms, deliver good services and you have good structures in place for managing your staff and HR, to some extent that that then flows to a successful business, which is making money. If you just look at the end product, which is making money, you're going to miss the steps along the way that caused your business to work efficiently and effectively in the first place. So you'd call it, is it, is it um, a sort of like a micro patient-focused um analysis of your business that you're doing on a regular basis to work out whether you feel as though your patients are happy coming to you for the services that you're providing to them? We have a very intense process of quality assurance at every level in the business. So, um, you know, at, a, at a, a basic level, radiation protection, for example, there's a licensing requirement, there are monitoring requirements. We measure and report the amount of radiation we've used on patients um, to make sure that those Amounts of radiation are, are within the guidelines, you know, established of what's a, an appropriate amount, what's a, a ideal amount of radiation to use. So, radiation protection, if you like, is at one level the quality assurance that is an automatic part of the process. Um, we look at uh, the, um, the the mix of workflow. Um, we so, for example, patient waiting time for me is a critical factor. I noticed that in reception. Patients hate waiting. And, I know. And why should they? Press a button after 15 minutes and, and let them know that you're not happy that That's you've right. been waiting. So if you are making sure that your patients are given appropriate timely appointments um, so that the doctor is available at the time they're allocated or available you know, within, a, within 15 minutes is our target, um, that patient is likely to go home and say, hey, I had a great service today. These people looked after me. Uh, phone manner at the front desk is critical. In fact, the front desk is probably as important as any other part of the process so that their uh, patients are politely answered, their queries are, are dealt with, their concerns are met. All of those things which are not medical at all in one sense are critical from a patient's point of view that they feel that they are being looked after and as well as being looked after so that, they, that their work, that their, that their movement through our workflow is smooth for them is comfortable, is respectful. So they're, they're not driven by money, no. but the net result is our rating room is full. So that tells me that we're delivering a good service. Self-managed super funds, do you believe in them? Do you have one? I do, exclusively. <laughs> uh, my view is that um, if you're giving your money to some manager and he's charging you 30% of the income that year, he has to be doing a fantastic job. So if the income that year on your super fund was, I'm saying 5%, and it's a 2% service fee, he's just taken 40% of your hard-earned income to do probably not very much other than park the money somewhere. 
I'm I'm not a big uh, fan of the Australian stock market. So if we have a look, uh, the first time the Australian stock market got to 7,000 was in 2007, I'm going to say, uh, 2006 or 7. It's still not back at 7,000 now. So 10 years later, if you had invested your your money in the supermarket in the stock market in 2007, you would still be waiting just to get a net return. Just to recoup zero. your losses. Correct. You'd still be waiting. Correct. Uh, there are a few things about the stock market. If you factor in the the effect of uh, the stock market reports either the top 20 or top 50 or top 100 stocks, if you're in a company which goes bad, you drop out of that list. So automatically every year, the failures are removed from the list. Mm. So over a period of time, we don't follow the same 100 companies over a 20-year cycle. <laughs> we follow the best 100 companies. Now, if you were investing in a company and you knew next year it was going to go bad, well, of course, you would sell your shares when it was still valuable. But in fact, if you've invested in a company which goes bad and drops out of the top 100, whatever measure you're using, you've still made the loss. You've still had to sell out at you know two cents a share, or or the company closed. It then takes new companies coming in who enter the top hundred and says, oh, you know, gee whiz, they've gone up this year. So it's a false measure of the performance of companies in general if you only measure the performance of the top fifty or the top five hundred because you're automatically excluding the failures. So when they quote performance over a long period of time, the stock market is artificially reporting better results than if you had owned the same stocks for that period of time. Because not all of those stocks are going to do as well. Some of them are going to drop out of the... If you uh, if you do some sort of exchange um, trading fund, you know, where you're just following the mean, if you were following the mean in Australia, your money still wouldn't be worth what it was worth in 2007. So it's not been a great investment. Counteracting against that, you do get uh, um, some tax credits. Um, where the company taxes ultimately handed on to the individual taxpayer. So if you're on a high tax bracket, those imputed tax credits can be valuable. Uh, the Australian stock market is not overvalued to the same extent as the American stock market. So our earnings multiple at the moment would be kind of 14 or 15 to 1 as a median. So that's about what a share price should be. In America, the multiple's now 27 times oh. earnings. Um, so on the face of it, the American stock market is substantially overvalued. It's overvalued to the same extent that it was in 1928. And so at some point soon, if events pan out as they usually do, there has to be a substantial correction in the American stock market to get them back to something like 15 times annual earnings. Uh, I heard um, the other day uh, uh, Myers reported their results. Um, so their earnings across the group was $11 million net. And I thought, how many employees have they got? And how much capital have they got invested? And if you divide that into the $11 million, that return on investment is terrible. And in general terms, retail is probably not a good area to be invested in at the moment because the internet is going to take over 30% of sales over the next 10 to 20 years, let's say. So if you're invested in traditional uh, you know, floor space, you know, retailing, then you're probably on a losing market for the next 20 years. If you then go, all right, well, I'm going to invest in um, in uh, an up-and-comer, I'm going to invest in Amazon, you know, fantastic share price, or Tesla, amazing share price. Tesla is now capitalised at more than Ford, motor company in, in America. 
he's not producing anything like the number of vehicles, but the share market has valued him at you know four hundred dollars a share. So those people who look like they're going to be great tech successes, uh, Amazon, for example, I don't believe has actually reported a profit in twenty years. I think uh, they so keep in reinvesting into the company. They do. So in general terms, if you're reliant on a fund manager and he's following the stock market, then he's probably over the last 10 years not made a fantastic investment for you. So in your super fund, is it property? Do you have properties or do you still have some stocks but you're not too enthusiastic about them? So uh, my advice to investors is uh, focus on what you know. So uh, a lot of my effort goes into my own business and and trying to improve the quality of the business. We talked about that. Um, if you understand the stock market and you think you can do better than the average return of the average fund manager, I'm not saying don't invest in the stock market. Uh, if you understand real estate, you're probably better off investing in real estate that you understand. So I think the most important thing when you're making investment decisions is to uh, not go in as a blind investor relying upon someone else because probably they're going to take a percentage of your money by some means of a fee or something else uh, you're better off in understanding the process in which you're investing having a view as to what's likely to be successful in the long term and investing accordingly so for me uh, coming from Sydney the property market has been uh, second to none as a, as a long-term investment vehicle it is called real estate for a reason. Um, what about insurance, life insurance, trauma, TPD, income protection? Do you believe in it? Do you Are you overweight in it? Or do you think that it's something that doesn't fit, your, fit into your portfolio? Um, again, without being too personal, uh, I see the value of insurance as managing a risk which you could not otherwise accommodate. So if you can afford to write your car off, over the life of a vehicle, you're better off not insuring it because eventually the insurance premiums must at least equal, if not exceed, the loss that you would incur. Having said that, if you have an individual asset that you um, that you own and can't afford to lose, like your income earning potential, potentially, uh, then then it would only be sensible to insure against that if the value of the insurance is not excessive. You know, if the cost of the insurance is not excessive. So. Uh, we all insure our houses, not expecting them to burn down. Interestingly, we don't insure our marriages, although 50% of the marriages do burn down. Uh, and, and maybe we'd be, you know, as a society, we'd be better off with the expectation that all people getting married entered into an insurance deal, in other words, a prenuptial, where they agreed at the beginning what would happen at the end of the relationship. So there was no need to employ, you know, very expensive lawyers and a lot of heartache entering into a situation which is already turmoil and and uh, so a breakup is always a very unhappy process. Uh, the legal system, if we follow Westminster, so the Australian legal system is adversarial, meaning you get two sides and they're going to fight. Uh, so having partners who are willing to fight backed by lawyers who just are too willing to fight is a recipe for disaster. Uh, I noticed that a couple of days ago they announced a, a, an overhaul of the Family Law Act. Um, so if we were if we were sensible about insurance, one of the insurances we would take out is we would automatically enter prenuptial agreements with our partners and make sure that at the end of the relationship, 
there's a comfortable parting of the ways with a pre-organised, pre-agreed set of rules. You asked me about insurance. Yeah, I, that's I a think good that's example. A fascinating of, idea. I never even actually even thought of that. Uh, of insurance against a high risk. You know, that's a, you know that's a big risk. Um, we insure our motor vehicles principally because the risk of being liable for a third-party claim is is m- much greater than the value of the vehicle. So again, very sensible risk management. Our businesses are all insured against uh, loss of income because uh, if there was a fire in the building, uh, we would be carrying all the costs of running the, the capital, for example, the, all the machines are all leased. Um, and so that would be you know, a, a major risk for us not to be able to at least cover the mandatory outgoings in the period of time when you reinstated your business. So I think insurance in general terms should be a consideration of, of uh, acceptable versus unacceptable risk where you cover yourself for, for losses that can't otherwise be managed from within your, your capacity to, to pay or, or sustain the loss. Wow. Um, so I've almost finished my questions, but I just want to talk to, talk to you about violins. Now, I, I know that you love playing your violin. I'm a passionate violin player. How many years have you been playing? Uh, I'm going to say over 50 because that would be giving my age away if I got any tighter than that. Um, and uh, I can still remember the first time I picked up a violin. I, uh, I was six and um, there we are. We've got even closer to my age now. <laughs> and uh, I was so excited about this violin that my parents had got me as a present. And... Uh, I wasn't allowed to play it until I'd got to the violin teacher. So I was hanging out for this very first lesson because I really wanted to play this violin. Uh, Over the next um, 10 years or so, I I studied um, moderately consistently and I would say consistent practice as a student is the single thing that sets a good player apart from a not-so-good player. at the, about the age of 16, uh, the HSC, so the high school certificate it's called in New South Wales, and the, you know, the studying for intense um, effort to get into medical school ultimately took, took me out of violin playing for a period of time. Uh, I started again when my eldest daughter was seven and she said to me, I was trying to get her to play the violin. You know, I, was, I was kind of revisiting my own childhood and I said, oh, it's great fun, you know, you really got to do it. It's, you know, it's something you'll really enjoy. And my seven-year-old daughter said to me, oh, um, Dad, do you, do you play the violin? I said, yeah, yeah, I do, thinking I used to. And uh, she said to me, oh, have you still got your violin? I haven't, I've never seen you play it. I thought, she's right. She's never seen me play the violin. It had sat in the cupboard all those years. I'd carried it around with me from place to place, but I just didn't get it out and play it. So I, I got out the violin and I started playing again. And uh, it, was, it was very funny. I, I joined a local string orchestra. I was sitting at the back of the second violins, which is about as far back as you can go without being a viola player. And um, the guy sitting next to me said, oh, you know, you know, how long have you been playing? I sort of did a mental calculation, said oh, a long time. And he said, oh, um, who's your violin teacher at the moment? And I said to him, oh, I, I don't have a violin teacher at the moment. And afterwards I realised he was suggesting maybe I should get a violin teacher again. (laughs) So I went back, got out my books, practised all the technicals and effectively kind of relearned at high speed the process that I'd gone through as a kid. And I still had all my, my, you know, scales and and arpeggios and, um, you know, minor thirds and sixths and all the things to do. Uh, And eventually I got myself back uh, playing better than I had been able to play as, as a child, which was fabulous. Um, joined a string quartet that has 
played um, every second Sunday for about the last 30 years together. And uh, we played right through the classical string repertoire a few times. Uh, for about the first five years that I was playing with these guys, and they'd been together longer than I had, I joined their group. Um, they would say to me, oh, you know, do you like uh, Mozart, you know, Kershaw 465? And I'd have to say, I've never heard <laughs> Kershaw 465. <laughs> so after about five years of playing, you know, consistently, I started to see things for the second time. So in that five years, I was pretty much always playing something that I that I had never seen. And so I got better at sight reading and being able to, you know, kind of think fast enough to work out which position I wanted to be in and how I was going to bow it. And, and after that, it became more and more about um, uh, the, the way you can make music with someone else or fit into, uh, you know, a group that's trying to make a, a cohesive sound and and play with a certain style or with a certain passion. or So it becomes about making the music, not about reading the notes. And if you can get to that point with a musical instrument, it, it really is a fantastic, uh, fabulous experience. So my um, then seven-year-old daughter, in fact, did learn the violin for a while, and she's a bit of a, um, I won't say rebellious, but she's certainly her own person, and uh, she decided she was going to play the cello. So um, we went ahead and got a cello for her, and she took that up and went on to become a really... A delightful cello player and that's become part of her adult um, experience as a, as a cellist. She um, teaches little kids now to uh, music in school and um, so she's um, she's a quite accomplished player in her own right but but also enjoys teaching other other little children that same sort of skill base. Um, my second daughter um, uh, moved from the violin to the viola and got a scholarship to um, high school playing her viola. Um, uh, number three, her daughter is currently still playing the violin, and um, and she's now re really a very adept little violinist. She uh, she's got a great singing voice, so her singing has become more important to her than her violin playing. Uh, my number four child uh, is also a, a very adept violinist, and uh, he plays without effort. He's he's a great great tone, and he's he just he's a natural he's you know naturally gifted and doesn't do a lot of practice despite my efforts uh, but uh, he he's again got to a point where he he's you know able to enjoy uh, the music that he's making not just struggling with the notes and uh, my littlest one at this stage is um, able to sing in tune which is a fabulous skill to have at the start and uh, has yet to take up a musical instrument now he's not yet three so I guess we can forgive him for not, not yet getting getting onto the keyboard or or the uh, or the strings. So I'm sure he will he will in due course um, probably start on the violin. I would guess. Um, what is your favourite piece to play? Ah, funnily enough, Mozart Kirschel four six five. It uh, it's called the Dissonance, and so it's a string quartet where Mozart was experimenting with uh, the almost the clash between notes that are very close to one another, for example, or or having two of the four instruments playing uh, slightly uh, at odds with the other two. And so it was it was one of the early pieces of music that um, led over the next 150 years to uh, the sort of um, Stravinsky, you know, that 20th century sound of, of these really interesting clashes of sound. Or, or Brahms um, wrote some fabulous music where you 
uh, in an orchestra might be playing three four while someone else is playing four four. So you know he literally has the music you know head bunning against itself. Um, and and one of the very early examples of that of Mozart, who and at this stage he'd written more than four hundred pieces of music. So four six five was the four hundred and sixty fifth in his catalogue of roughly six hundred pieces that he wrote. And he starts to experiment with this idea of of clashing or or, or um, you know. Um, Interference of, of sounds with each other. So, and it's a it's a fascinating piece to play. Um, uh, four very different parts to the to the string quartet, and each one of them has uh, a, a kind of a challenge, which is not just technical. It's more it's more about the way you interact with the other people. Dr. Roger Davies, thank you ever so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our chat, and I'm really hoping that the listeners enjoy it half as much as I have today. Oh, thank look, you. It, it's been absolutely my pleasure and thank you for uh, the conversation that we've had. Been great. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to be bringing you these podcasts on a weekly basis. We hope they're really useful and if you find them useful, please share them and if you go to iTunes and give us a review, that'd be awesome or put some comments in the show notes. And if you think that you're a person who would like to come on the show as a guest, please reach out to us at themedicalaccountant.co, send us an email, and we'd love to have you on the show.